Thank you, Eddie, for reading God's word for us this morning. And uh, one of the things that we value uh, so much at Christ Community is God's Word. It's central to everything that we do. And in fact, if you don't have a Bible, um, there's a Bible and there's Bibles kind of spread throughout. You're welcome to grab one of those, even take it home with you if you don't have a Bible yourself or um, download one onto your smartphone um, this morning. So I'd love to pray as we look into this uh, passage together and then we'll open God's Word together. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you have uh, given us your Word, that you've given us your law, and uh, we want to understand it. We want to uh, treasure it. We want to we wanna learn from it. We want to be changed by it ultimately. And so we pray this morning that you, uh, by your Spirit, would do that work. Your Spirit is the only one who can do that work of transformation, of, of changing. And so we pray for his help uh, this morning as we look at this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to say uh, that I am not a fan of heights is a pretty big understatement. And I was reminded just uh, of how true that was uh, about six months ago. The building here was still under construction, and if you were you know, a part of this as the building was under construction or you drove by, you saw there was this massive scaffolding that went up the steeple. We had to replace the whole steeple structure and there was this, you know, hundred and, I don't know, 35 foot scaffolding that they built around the steeple. And, and just as they were finishing the work on the steeple and they were going to, in the next few days, they were going to take the steeple down. Um, one of uh, the members here in the congregation said, you know, I, he's an engineer, he loves uh, construction and building. And he said, I would love to go up that steeple. Is there any way that, you know, you could talk with the foreman or whatever and, and go get us a, kind of a tour to go up to the top. And I said, oh, yeah, sure. I'd, well, I'd love to go up there as well. And so, um, which, I, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. But so, and Rachel was with me as well. So on a Friday, we, we met this person down at the steeple, and we, we climbed up on this thing. And I started climbing. And it was a nice scaffolding. I mean, it had stairs, and it had, you know, hand railings. And, but it was still, like, it kind of wobbled a little bit. I mean, still scaffolding. So we're climbing up this thing, and we got to about halfway up, and I just froze. And I said, Rachel, I can't go any higher. And, 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 you know, the guy's going up. He went all the way to the top, and Rachel's like, oh, I'll just, I, she wanted, I think, wanted to prove that she could do this. So she went up one more level, and then she's like, I don't think I'm going to go any higher either. Because you could sort of see down through the, the thing, and I just, I mean, I was kind of white-knuckling it, and I was really tense, and I said, okay, we got to go back down. Now, contrast that experience. I thought, oh, this will be no problem. I'll climb to the top of this. I didn't make it halfway. I made it to about the height of the stone out there, if you look on your way out, and I wasn't going any higher. Um, but contrast that to a few years ago, I was in Chicago and, uh, was at the top of the Hancock building in Chicago, which is a a much, I mean, many times higher than the steeple. And, uh, I was eating dessert. I was right on the edge. I was having a great time, um, laughing. I was not white knuckling onto the table. Uh, And the only difference between those two circumstances one, when I was utterly fearful uh, to the point of, of, of almost freaking out, to re- relaxing, enjoying dessert, having a great time, was glass and steel boundary that kept me from the edge. See, I think oftentimes we imagine that barriers or boundaries constrain us or they uh, it prohibit us from enjoying life. But so often they're actually the thing that gives us freedom that allows us to be at ease. 
Um, and, and in fact, even people are recognizing now in the business and artistic community that boundaries actually enable you to be more creative. I was reading an article the other day that kind of asked the question, where do great ideas come from? And they said, many of us imagine creativity comes from an environment of boundless possibility, no rules, no restrictions. But the article goes on to say, as counterintuitive as it sounds, boundaries actually boost creativity. Uh, Think about procrastination. Deadlines are often the single factor that ensure projects get done. Creativity is driven by constraints. When we have limited resources, uh, even if those artificially limited resources, even if that limits are artificial, uh, creativity and, and creative thinking is enhanced. You see, when there's no boundaries, the possibilities seem too large. That's why some of the greatest art and innovation has come from situations of constraint. So could it be that rather than being burdensome and oppressive, that rules, or, or at least God's rules, could actually be liberating? That they could actually be freeing? That they could be creativity-inducing? That they could be human-flourishing-producing? Well, this morning, as we look at the Ten Commandments uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, I want us to see that even as counterintuitive as it may seem, the law is God's good gift to us. The law is God's good gift to us. The law is good. This is part of the way that God shows us his grace. Often we think about grace and law as being sort of opposed to one another, but really God's law is a gift of grace to us. The law shows us how we can live a life of flourishing. And so this morning, as we look at the Ten Commandments, as they're listed out in Deuteronomy, and you may want to jot this down, I want us to look at three questions. And this is going to be kind of our roadmap for the morning. But first of all, so why does God give us rules? That's the first question we want to ask. Why does God give us rules? And then what are those rules? That's where we'll really press into the Ten Commandments and and take a look at some of those. So why does God give us rules? What are those rules? And then finally, how do we respond? So why does God give us rules? What are those rules? And then how do we respond? So the first question we want to look at is, why does God give us rules? Well, the book of Deuteronomy, which Eddie read to us from this morning, um, functions as sort of an epilogue to the Pentateuch. All this time since January 1st, when we started this series, we've been in a set of books called the Pentateuch, or or the Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament, and Deuteronomy is the last one of those. The book of Numbers um, is basically brought us to the edge of the Promised Land, that's what we looked at last week, both in a geographical as well as a chronological sense, and the book of Deuteronomy attaches itself to the place where Numbers ends, and it contributes important information about God's law to his people. Because this is, you remember, from last week, the people were sent to wander around the desert for 40 years. A whole generation was going to pass away in the desert, and now a new generation was going to enter the promised land. And they need to know the law. And so Deuteronomy, um, actually the name Deuteronomy means second law. So this is a retelling of the law. It's a reiteration of the law of Moses, this instruction for how to live in the land I love how author and pastor Eugene Peterson, he describes Deuteronomy this way. He, he really imagines it as a sermon. He says, Deuteronomy is a sermon, actually a series of sermons. It is the longest sermon in the Bible, maybe the longest sermon ever. Deuteronomy presents Moses standing on the plains of Moab with all of Israel assembled before him preaching. It is his last sermon. When he completes it, he will leave his pulpit on the plains, climb a mountain, and die. And that's how the book of Deuteronomy ends, with Moses' death. 
So if Exodus and Numbers are the rules sort of written out, God's law written out, Deuteronomy is a sermon about those rules. It explains them. It applies them. And the goal of this sermon that Moses is giving in the book of Deuteronomy is that the people would know that this is God's law for them today. That this generation entering the landowners into that today, right now, that they are God's people. That this law is for them. And, and in, you notice the word today, it comes up in Deuteronomy chapter 5 a few times in verses 1 and 3. And the reason this idea of today is so important is that God is not making a new covenant with this group of people. He's not doing something new here, but he's renewing what he's already done. And these commands are for this people today. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy, if you're following along and open here, which you'll be doing, look out for the word today. It occurs 58 times in the book of Deuteronomy. 58 times. So it's an important word that right now, right now, today, this people. But, but so why is this important? Why is it important that God gives us rules? Why would he do that? Why does he do this? Well, there are a lot of things we could talk about, but I just want to mention a couple this morning. The first reason that God gives us rules is that God's rules teach us about who he is. And then secondly, they teach us about who we are. So first, God's rules teach us about who he is. Our rules, um, God's rules reveal something about who he is. And it's important to remember, and we, we said this along the way, but all throughout the Bible, God is the main character. He's what this book is about from beginning to end. This isn't ultimately a book about you or me, but it's ultimately a book about God and what he is doing. So even when he reveals laws that have to do with who we are and what we're to be doing, it's ultimately so that we can live in a way that honors and shows forth his glory to the world. Israel's greatness and distinctiveness and identity even is directly related to God's greatness and distinctiveness in the distinctiveness of his law. And it's interesting because our rules, you know, we all have rules, right, at one level. You know, we, we may not think about it, but we all have certain rules. Our rules are so tied to our identity. They reveal something about who we are. So, for instance, if you have a rule, you maybe you don't call it a rule, but maybe you have a rule, a functional rule, that, that you only get your news uh, from the Wall Street Journal, or that you only get your news from the New York Times. Well, if you have that rule, that immediately tells us something about who you are, right? And maybe how, a little bit of how you think about the world and, and what's going on in it. It helps define who you are. You know, one of the rules that I had growing up, and I didn't even have anyone really teach me this. I grew up in St. Louis. I had a rule that I never rooted for, and I always hated the Cubs, right? I mean, so that defined me as a Cardinals fan growing up in St. Louis. So the rules that we have actually begin to form our identity. They tell us something about who we are. The things that we're absolutely willing to do or unwilling to do reveal something about who we are. So God's rule reveals his character, his identity, who he is. And the second reason that God gives us rules that we mentioned is that they teach us about who we are. They teach us about who we are in light of God's story that he's writing, the story of creation, what ought to be, the fall, what is in light of sin and death, redemption, what can be in light of God's grace, and new creation, what God will do one day to restore the whole world. You see, God's rules, his law reveals his design in creation and restoration. They reveal what life is supposed to be like, how it's supposed to work. They show us how life was meant to be lived. But they also show us, even now after Eden, 
how we can live life in, in light of a broken world where things are not as they ought to be. They show us how we can begin to restore, even if only in proximate ways, peace and wholeness, what the Bible calls shalom. So if we want to experience a little bit of a taste of what it was like, and I love the imagery that, that uh, Mindy's uh, song, Draw Near, we just sang, I love the imagery of that song of, of take us back to this idea of, of the garden, bring us back there. If we want a taste of what the garden is like, then we have to begin to learn to know and to love and to live out God's law, his rule. The law teaches us what we need. It shows us grace and our need for grace. The law truly is God's good gift to us. God has given us his law that we might flourish. It is his gift to us. It is his grace. It is life. And later on in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses will actually say in Deuteronomy 3, and and Jesus repeats this in the Gospels, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. So God's word is actually, it's life. This is the image. Uh, there's a, a great picture. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a title of a book called Eat This Book. This, this book is life. It's food. It's nourishment for us. It's more than just a set of abstract laws. It, these are the words of life. So ask yourself this week, as, as if you're following along with Open Here and you're reading, ask yourself as you read through the book of Don, Deuteronomy, what do these commands teach me about, about me, about who I am? And what do they teach me about who God is? How are these words the words of life to you? How are they words of life to us as a community? How do they teach us who God is and who we are? So that's a little bit, just a brief snapshot of why God gives us rules. They reveal who he is. They teach us about who we are. They show us how life works best. But what are those rules? This is the second question we want to look at this morning, is is what are the rules that God has given us? Well, in the Gospels, Jesus is asked, which of God's commandments are the greatest? A lawyer comes to him, he kind of wants to test Jesus, and he says to Jesus, which of the laws, Lord, of Jesus, are, are the greatest? Of all these laws in the Old Testament, which ones are the greatest? And Jesus replies, and he said to him, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. He says, this is the greatest commandment. And he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all of the law and the prophets. Those are the two big sections of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on those two ideas of loving God and loving your neighbor. So much so that even the Apostle Paul, who was a New Testament writer, wrote the letter to a bunch of churches in Galatia. He wrote in his letter, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So how do these two commandments, to love God and love our neighbor, uh, and then there's, relate to the Ten Commandments, which, which Eddie read for us. And, you know, rabbis variously identify that there was maybe 613 total commandments in the Old Testament. So how do those two laws, love God, love your neighbor, how do those relate to the Ten Commandments? Well, basically, those are all sub-commandments that tell us how to do those two things, how to love God and how to love our neighbor. All the other laws, all the other laws fit underneath either loving God or loving our neighbor. They're practical application of of how do we do that? What does it look like to love God and love our neighbor in a fallen and broken world? The law teaches us how to do that. It shows us what that looks like. 
So the Ten Commandments fit neatly into that framework. The first few, one through four, deal with loving God. And then the, the last few, five through ten, with loving our neighbor. Now, there's a lot we could say about each one of the Ten Commandments. There's, in fact, a number of years ago, maybe back in 2009, we actually did a whole series on the Ten Commandments, and we did a whole sermon on each one of the commandments. We're not going to do that today, but I do want to take a, a moment and just look briefly at each one of the Ten Commandments. What are this, this core of God's law? And think about it. This was probably the first bits of the Bible to be written down as God gives these commandments to Moses on these tablets of stone. This is probably the very first part of God's word that's ever been written down. These ten words, these ten laws. So what are they? What, what are they? What has God called us to? Well, let's just take them and look at them each one by one. The first commandment is the foundation. It says that we should not have any other gods before God. It says, Deuteronomy, this is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. But notice again, and I, I, th- I think I've tried to say this every single week if we talked about the law, but notice what it's rooted in. He says, first, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, God begins the Ten Commandments with a statement about who he is. He is the one who has rescued them out of Egypt. You see, the law is rooted in rescue. Grace and rescue come before demand. Law is part of the gift of redemption, not a precondition to it. God didn't give them this law while they were still slaves in Egypt and said, you know, try on these commandments. If you do a good job of keeping them, then maybe I'll rescue you. No, he acts dramatically and decisively to rescue and to save his people. And then he gives them yet another gift of this law to say, this is how you can live a life of flourishing in this new freedom and rescue that I've given you. And the first command is to love God first, foremost, and only. The, uh, the German church reformer, uh, Martin Luther, said that a God is that which our heart clings to and entrusts itself to. Basically, our God is that which gives us life, security, significance, now, now, in the ancient Near East where Moses and, and God's people were, the nature deities, the God of the rain, of the storm, of the, of the sun, these were the things that provided those things of life and security and significance. But in our context, you know, we don't worship the sun god, and, and most of us actually aren't that connected to an agricultural world where whether it rains or snows or how much, it doesn't affect us directly but we still run the risk of getting our security, our life, our significance from things other than God, from our employment, our money, our ability to earn, from our material goods, from our romantic relationships, from having power over others. Any of these things can become that thing which gives us life, security, and significance. So what does this teach us about God? The commandment doesn't mean that there are sort of other deities that are out there of which God is the greatest. Rather, it addresses our ability, our tendency to take something other than God and make him that thing into God. So what does it teach us about us? Well, it teaches us in a fallen world that we will try to find our security in something that God has made rather than in him himself. In a fallen world, our default setting is to find our life in something other than God, to find it in something he's made rather than in him. 
But here's the good news about this commandment. The good news is that a commandment not to trust something else is an invitation to trust the one who has provided for everything that you need. This commandment is an invitation to trust the one true God who does love you supremely, who can give you all that you truly need and desire. So the second commandment is not to make an image or an idol. How is this commandment different from the first? I often ask this question, don't these kind of seem like the same thing? Don't make an idol or don't have another God before me? Well, the, the difference here is that in the second commandment, what's being addressed is making an image of deity, making a statue or a picture, an image of, of God. Now, it's important to point out that this command is not about not doing artwork, but it's really about not making an image of deity. See, in the ancient Near East, and we talked about this a little bit uh, in the sacrifice uh, message a number of weeks ago, but the idea of making an image of the deity was all about manipulating and controlling that deity. The common practice was to try to capture the living forces of nature, such as birds, animals, sun, moon, all this kind of things, into some kind of concrete statue that you could, could feed, manipulate, control. And this all becomes something as a way of control. I mean, people in the ancient Near East weren't, weren't dumb. I mean, they didn't think that this little statue actually was the God, but they felt that it contained that sort of the essence of the God resided in that thing, and that if you could control the statue, if you could feed the statue, if you could get, this was your way of controlling the deity. So this is what this command is, is prohibiting. But it doesn't prohibit making art. And some people have taken it to say this command is that like we shouldn't have any kind of representational artwork of any kind. And this is why, actually, if you go to um, the Middle East and a lot of Islamic uh, cultures, while you don't see a lot of pictures of animals or birds, but you see a lot of geometric artwork, calligraphy, architecture, it really goes back to not wanting to run into this, breaking this commandment of making a picture of something. But all throughout the Bible, even within the Torah, the Old Testament, you see God calling his people to make pictures of his creation, um, to make artwork. So this isn't a command against artwork, but it teaches us that God is invisible, that he's infinite, that he's utterly uncontrollable, that he is not subject to being manipulated by us. This teaches us that we must not try to control or manipulate God for example, by trying to live a good life and saying that, God, now you must give me what I want because I have done what you want. Third commandment is to not take the Lord's name in vain. And literally, this means, the language says, do not lift up the name to emptiness or worthlessness. That's what this idea of vainness means. Do not lift it up to emptiness or, or, or worthlessness. And so this command concludes a lot of things. I think oftentimes we think about, okay, like sort of a swearing or a profanity kind of situation. Um, but remember, and that's important. We don't want to miss that because remember God's name represents his character. It's who he is. His name captures the essence of all that he is and his goodness and his greatness and his beauty. And so when we casually or angrily or thoughtlessly toss around his name, it devalues that. It's like taking a beautiful picture and just using it for, to wipe off dirt. But this is much more than just language. To take God's name in emptiness or falsehood or, or vanity is to proclaim something false in God's name, to speak untruthfully about who he is. 
But however, even more important than either one of those things, and they, they definitely fall under that commandment, this idea of, of misusing God's name or of, of speaking something untrue in God's name. But more important even than that, what really goes to the heart of this commandment is the idea of worshiping in God's name, of, of gathering, of singing songs, of, of, of doing worship in God's name, and then living a life that is completely disconnected from that, that's duplicitous. Because basically you're, you're saying, you're professing with your, with your mouth that this is who God is and how great he is. And then when we live a different way, it, it lifts up his name to worthlessness. I had a professor in, in seminary who would say, the worst blasphemy is not profanity, but lip service. The worst blasphemy is not profanity, but lip service. When we say that God is important to us, when we, when we profess him and then live a life that is utterly... Uh, devoid of that. We learn that God's name is precious and we learn that we must treat it as such. Command 4 in Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15, we see the command to rest, to observe the Sabbath. In, in Exodus, the Sabbath, the command is based on um, the pattern of creation. So this is actually the second time that we're getting the Ten Commandments. Originally, they are given in Exodus chapter 20, and now they're being given to the people, reminded of them again. And in Exodus, it's based on, this, on God's pattern in creation, that God worked six days and then he rested on the seventh. That's the rationale that's given in Exodus chapter 20. But here it's different. Here the rationale is based on redemption from slavery. Because remember, when they were slaves, they couldn't rest. If you're a slave, you can only rest when your master says to. And toward the end of their time in Egypt, they weren't getting any rest at all. And so God reminds them, I have rescued you out of slavery. Now you can rest. Now you have the ability, indeed the command, to rest. When you think about it, the week is the only unit of time that we have that isn't based on a sort of an, uh, an astrological kind of uh, phenomenon. Like a, the, you know, the year is based on the sun, day is based on the sun, month is based on the moon. The week is just God's gift to us. These seven days and one of those days given fully for rest. And the heart of rest is to sit back and to enjoy what has been accomplished on the other six days. It's a time to remember that God values us not by our ability to produce but by who we are as creatures made in his image. That we have value apart from what we do. Sabbath frees us to live a life according to the pattern that God has established as creatures who need rest. And today, Sabbath is no longer a rigidly prescribed event that takes place on Saturday, but the significance is no less important. We must learn to rest. So we learn about God that he gives us a pattern of rest, and that we must embrace that pattern. So those are the first four commandments that teach us about loving God, um, and they relate directly. In the first four commandments, there, if you notice in, in the text, they have a lot of explanation. I mean, they're given, there's a lot said about them. And the last, there's not very much said about them. And the reason that this is, is the first four commandments, these are unique to Israel. No other country, no other nation has these commands. And so the author gives us a lot more explanation, the reason why. But the last six, um, with the exception maybe of the coveting, are given with almost no explanation or rationale at all. Because these commandments in the second half are almost universal in every culture. Um, They are the laws that are written on human conscience. 
And so the author just states them without arguing for them. And the first one of these is to honor your father and mother. We see uh, in verse 16, honoring means to esteem them as having value. Um, all human beings have value because they are made in God's image, but our parents have unique value as those whom by God gave us life. And practically what this means, I mean, it means if, if you're a child and, and you're at home, it means honoring your parents means respecting them. It means listening to what they tell you to do to, to obey them. But more broadly, honoring our parents, it doesn't stop when we, when we leave home, we turn 18, we go off to college. Practically, we continue to honor our parents um, by providing for them, by taking care of them. And I'm not just talking about financially or materially, though that's important as well, but also emotionally. It means writing them a note, visiting, texting, calling them. I was terrible at this in college. And I, and I didn't really realize how selfish I was in, until I went off to college. And it was like my, weeks would go by, you know, and I wouldn't call my parents. And, and they would be upset. And I was like, well, I'm busy. You know, i got stuff going on. And I, I, it wasn't until a long time that I really began to understand that part of the way that I honor my parents is to call them on a regular basis, to, to make time to visit them, to give them the gift of, of replying to their emails in a timely manner, those kinds of things. We honor our parents by, by showing them the respect uh, that, they de- that they deserve, that they have. Um, I recognize this morning that, that in the brokenness and fallingness of our world, all of our parents are far from perfect um, and that probably some of you here have suffered terribly, either emotionally, physically, um, at the hands of your parents. Um, and this certainly raises the complexity for how we apply this command. But it doesn't exempt it from us. It's a matter of figuring out, okay, how even in light of this brokenness do I continue to show honor? Command six says, you shall not murder. That's pretty simple. And in fact, it's only two Hebrew words, uh, the Hebrew word for murder and then the Hebrew word for don't do it. Um, so that's a pretty straightforward command. This is, refers to taking innocent life, either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, the laws in the book of Numbers make clear that this is not just about sort of intentional uh, killing, but even by way of, of killing accidentally is covered by this command. Um, it's interesting that this doesn't refer to killing in war or capital punishment, both of which the Old Testament um, has a framework for. But this idea of taking innocent life, we stand firm in protecting life at every stage from conception to death, whether high-functioning or low-functioning, rich or poor, productive or unproductive. And again, medical technologies at the beginning of life and at the end of life make applying this command a lot more complex now than I think it ever has been. But again, the complexity doesn't prohibit us or or, or exempt us from working and doing our best to understand what does it mean to honor life in our world today. This teaches us that God, he values human life in his image supremely and that we must do so also. Uh, In verse 18, again, this is another pretty straightforward commandment, the Hebrew word for adultery plus the Hebrew word for don't do it. Um, This command is expanded elsewhere in the law, especially in in Leviticus 18 and other places to include not only adultery, but any sexual contact outside of the the bounds of marriage um, between a man and a woman. And first and foremost, this teaches us about God, that he is faithful to his people and to his promises. I mean, the reason that adultery is so contrary to God's design is that God often uses the metaphor of marriage to describe his relationship to his people. The reason that we don't commit adultery is because God doesn't commit adultery. He doesn't 
commit adultery with his people. He is unswervingly faithful to his people, always upholding his promise, always doing what he says he will do, always faithful. And so we too are to be unswervingly faithful in our promises to our spouse. Verse 19 gives us the command uh, not to steal. Um, I told you these get a lot shorter. Um, the prohibition is also a protection. This, this prohibition not to steal actually protects us. All these commands protect us from really from the sinful tendencies of one another. What we have been received, what we have been given, is not to be taken from us. Scholars point out that property represents the fruit of industry and intelligence and any aggression on the property of our neighbor therefore is an insult an assault on his human personality this prohibits us from taking from others what's rightfully theirs whether it's royalties for music or taxes or or tips and again again in our world today especially with the digitalization of intellectual property from books and music and film and television all this is made following the command not to steal a lot more difficult But again, that complexity doesn't exempt us from having to follow it or to understand what it means. This command teaches us about God that he gives generously. And it teaches about us that we must not take from others what he has generously given to them. Command nine. It says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor in verse 20. And this commandment is similar to the third commandment, actually, this commandment um, about taking the Lord's name in vain. The commandment, the third commandment, protects God's name and his reputation. And this commandment protects one's neighbor's name and reputation. I mean, if you've ever been in a situation where you have been lied about, where people have said things that aren't true about you, you know the value, the importance of a command like this, that not to say untrue things about one another because you can destroy someone's reputation. And actually, when you destroy someone's reputation, you take so much more from them than just their reputation. If you, if you stole my car from me, I can go, I mean, I have insurance. I can get a new car. I don't have insurance for my reputation, right? If that's taken from you, if that's destroyed, it's, it's, you can't recoup that so often. So this commandment protects our neighbor's name and reputation. And this covers all aspects of falsehood, including, including using the truth with evil intent. Right? You can know something true about someone and then spread that as a way to destroy them with evil intent. So this even includes using the truth with evil intention. So we learn that God is a God of truth who does not lie. And we learn about ourselves that we, too, should be a people who are characterized by truth-telling. So commandments 6 through 9, they teach us to bestow on others these, these four basic fundamental rights. The right to life, with this command not to murder. The right to home, with this commandment against adultery. The right to property, with this commandment against um, stealing. And then the right to reputation. These are basic fundamental things that we, we would have life, that we would have a, a home that is protected, that we would be, our property would be safe, that our reputation would be safe. But I love how Bruce Walkies points this out. Because of the way the commandments are framed, these are actually by obeying them. We give these rights to other people. These aren't things that we insist on for ourselves. He says God's kingdom is based on bestowing rights on others, not insisting on the same rights for ourselves. 
You see, as we follow these commandments, we actually ensure that other people have these basic fundamental rights. And then lastly, do not covet your neighbors. And then there's this long list, wife, house, field, servant, ox, donkey, anything. And this is the most comprehensive of all the commandments. And it includes what's omitted from the rest. Basically, covet means to entertain desire or process or to possess what someone else has. And this commandment actually, it kills at the source what usually drives us to break the other commandments, right? Because what's behind nearly all killing, adultery, stealing, lying, it's all about covetousness, always about wanting something that someone else has so much that you're willing to either take it or kill for it. In fact, I was thinking about this. I mean, isn't most of, most of our credit card debt probably wrapped up in covetousness of wanting something that we don't have so much that we're willing to go into, into debt? I mean, Rachel and I often has these conversations about, well, well, we could if this has like 0% interest for some, you know, it's like we want it now and, and maybe we can. So much of, I think, our debt, our consumer debt is wrapped up in, in this over desire of wanting, of wanting more than what we can really afford. I love how Dorothy Sayers says this. She says, Envy begins by asking plausibly, why should I not enjoy what others enjoy? And ends by demanding, why should others enjoy what I may not? Begins by asking, why should I not enjoy what others enjoy? And then ends by demanding, why should others enjoy what I may not? This commandment teaches us that God is generous and that he has given us enough, that he has given us what we need and that we must be content and thankful. So how do we respond to these rules? I mean, that's that's a lot there. How do we respond to these rules? Well, first we respond by loving them. As we started to open here back in November with this kind of idea of what is opening, we looked at Psalm 19. And in this psalm, it's a celebration of the goodness of, of the God's law, of his word. In this passage, the psalmist rejoices. He calls the law this, this thing of beauty that he loves. It's a treasure. It's worth more than gold. So we rejoice in a God who loves us enough to show us the best way to live in his world. And what happens when we keep God's laws? Are they oppressive? No, they are a joy. And what happens when we break them? Actually, we end up not really breaking God's law, but we end up breaking ourselves on his law. You see, obedience is the path to flourishing. God commands for our good. Second, we respond by seeking to obey his rules. We must wrestle with how do we love God and neighbor in our world? What does it look like to obey these commandments in your classroom, in your home, in your workplace? It is complex to love God and neighbor. It's absolutely complex. But this just means we have to help one another all the more to understand how do we do this in our world. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, we will fail. I mean, this is a high standard. We will fail. We will not live up to this. Moses knew that people wouldn't live up to it. God knew that the people wouldn't live up to it. We know that we will not live up to it. And and even if maybe for a moment you think, yeah, you know what? Actually, I've done pretty good at these Ten Commandments. I, I, you know, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't stolen from anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I'm actually doing pretty good. Even even if we're in a place where we think, I've done these Ten Commandments pretty well. Jesus is going to remind us in the New Testament that, that maybe you don't murder, but if you get deeply angry with people, that's basically the same thing. And and maybe you haven't actually committed adultery, but, but if you want to, if, if, if you lust after someone, it's just as bad. 
So as we come to the communion table this morning, our final response to God's rules must be to cling to the one who obeys them completely and fully for us. You see, the only thing more gracious than a God who gives us rules is a God who dies for us when we can't keep them. You see, God's law forces us to face our sin, but only God's gospel can forgive our sin. And I love this. John Stott points out that the symbol of Christianity is not a scale. The icon that symbolizes all that Christianity is is not a scale of weighing good against bad. The symbol of Christianity is a cross on which Jesus died to forgive all of our sins, to forgive all of our failings. The fundamental symbol is not a scale, but a cross that represents substitutionary, unmerited forgiveness. You see, the law, the old covenant, it could show us our need for rescue, but it could never in itself rescue us. I love this. The prophet Jeremiah, he would speak of a new covenant, a better covenant to come. Listen to these words. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with them on their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand out of Egypt. I'm going to do something new, something different. For this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And I love this. And no longer shall each of them teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then this is key. For I will forgive their sin and I will remember their sin no more. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, established that new covenant. The new covenant that puts God's law within us, that forgives us our sin. On that night, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat. And then he took the cup. And when he had finished giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you. For this is the blood of my new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. You don't have to be a member of Christ's community to participate in communion. Um, you just have to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, this morning, uh, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you're not sure that you've taken that step, um, I would encourage you just to use this time to, to take a, just have a break in the service and get to, to relax and to watch and to think about what God has done. Or maybe, or maybe come. Maybe come as an expression of your trust that today you are saying, I am forsaking my ability to do this on my own and I'm clinging solely to the cross. If you do that, I would love to, to talk with you um, after about that. So you're um, welcome to remain seated, but you're welcome to come. And when you come, gather in groups of four or five and take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then partake together as a, uh, as a group. There are four communion stations, two in the back and two up front. There's gluten-free uh, communion almonds back here if you need that. Um, and it tends to work best if you exit through the side aisles and then return to your seat through the middle aisles. Um, the pews are narrow and you may have to climb over one another or bump into another going in and out, and that's okay. But I invite you to take this time. Don't feel rushed. Come to the Lord's table now to taste and touch and see the good news, the forgiveness of sins, the introduction of a new covenant. Come to the Lord's table when you're ready.